Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode two of the Moen Friends Sports Podcast. Thank you to everyone who tuned in for our first episode last week. Really appreciate your support and hope you've been enjoying the content so far. Today, I'm joined by my good friend, former work colleague, and a man who walks marathons for fun, Eric. Welcome to the show, Eric. G'day, Mo. Thank you for having me. How you been, mate? Oh, good, mate. Good, good. Yeah, it's been a brutal summer. I'm looking forward to it finishing off. Awesome, man. Well, I look forward to some good conversations. And in Moen Sports podcast tradition, I'm going to start off by asking you your favourite sporting moment as a fan and then your personal sporting claim to fame. Um, so with my favourite sporting moment as a fan, I actually went back and watched it again yesterday after um, we were having a chat about it. It's, it's Jordan's last ring, like that last quarter of, of Jordan's career. I mean, you were saying last last week that you were showing your age and now I'm, I'm showing my age a little bit because um, I, I remember watching that the, the last two of Jordan's, Jordan's titles where he was up against Stockton and Malone and it was, they were fantastic games. But that final quarter, he was like eight from eight from the free throw line. He got them the bucket that got them between one. He stripped Malone. He got the final points to get it over. And just that moment where he shot the ball just watching it come out of his hands and he's just held the shot as it went all the way in and you're like, that's it, that's done. You were like watching in a moment a guy completely transcend the sport into something completely different. So that, that for me, all other sporting moments get compared to that. Because that, that I think was, he was the first one where it was like a superstar that was like so much bigger than, than the game. Like he just transcended everything. And he had his, like the Jordan sneakers and everything, which is still going now. They're up to like 34 or something like that. It's, it's insane. So that, that was my favorite, favorite sporting moment. I take it you're a Michael Jordan fan. Um, it's, it's in, like, it's, it's weird. Cause I'm like, cause we're going to get into it a little bit today. It was like, I loved Jordan, but I never loved the bulls. Mm. So, but you, it was just, when you watched him move and you watched him play, you knew you weren't going to see anything exactly the same as it ever again. So it was like Jordan was just phenomenal. Awesome. That's a, that's a great moment. I mean, I, I probably was around similar age to you. I was about 10 years old when that happened and I still remember it. And when he took that strip, I'm like, oh, this is not going to go to a game seven. And you just sort of knew that it wasn't going to go to a game seven once Jordan got that ball and he went to his spot and, and he did what, you know, what but he does as the assassin. So, Yeah, and just the, the thing was you knew Jordan was going to get the ball. Like you knew, you knew that's what was happening. But yeah. You couldn't do anything about it. Like he just, Jordan was going to do what Jordan was going to do and you just had to like do what you could to keep up with it. It was, it was just insane. So it was... It, for me, that, that moment, I'm like, right, that everything else that I've ever seen, I've kind of looked at it in terms of how does this compare to that particular moment? And it, it's still the one that sits at the top where I go, yeah, that's, that's the one. What about your personal claim to fame? Uh, my personal claim to fame, I had a big think about this and I thought back to trophies that I got. I peaked, I really peaked in, in school. <laughs> like there was no, no sporting prowess post school. And it came down to, I was like the top scorer in under 10s. I'm going to get my mum to send me a picture of the trophy. I saw it sitting in the house at Christmas and I was a left back as well. So it was just like exploding up the sidelines like Roberto Carlos and just picking <laughs> goals off. 
So it was just like that I think was when I look back at it, I'm like, you know, that's the top one, top scorer in the league, even though it was like ACT, under 10s, something <laughs> like that. It was primary school. I got, it might have been under nines, but that's, I'll get mum to send a picture of the trophy. I got a trophy and everything for it. So it was, yeah, it was a good moment. Well, I'm a, I'm a big football slash soccer fan myself as well, and I'm sure we'll, we'll get into that a bit more too. And I'm glad you had some success at the under 10s level because I definitely didn't have any. <laughs> Because of my size, they used to play me as goalie. I was always tall. So for those who don't know, I'm 6'4", I'm 6'5". Six, six, I was always one of those taller kids. So it wasn't like I reached an age where all of a sudden I had this growth spurt. You could always see, you know, I was taller and bigger than everyone else. And they just put me in goals. Yeah, fair to say we didn't win best defensive team. That's for sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> But that was good fun. Awesome. All right, let's get straight into it. I'll do a bit of a round the grounds from the weekend and then we can, uh, you know, deep dive into the topics that we wanted to discuss at length. As you know, the Australian Open Grand Slam concluded over the weekend and in the women's championship match, Naomi Osaka beat Petra Kefitova in three sets, 7-6, 5-7, It was a a great match to watch. Uh, There was a lot of good hitting there and Osaka could have really finished it in the second set. She had three break points, which were also three championship points on Kvitova's serve, and she managed to lose the next five points to lose that game, and then she lost the next four games to lose the set. And I really thought, you know, this is a 21-year-old, even though she's won one Grand Slam, she doesn't have a lot of experience, and I thought she's going to crack under the pressure, but all credit to her. She stuck through and she was able to um, keep a level head and actually come back and win the match. So she's now the world number one. She's won the last two slams. And from the younger sort of generation of female players, I think if she maintains that sort of level head and her hard hitting, which which I saw in the, in the final, I think she'll have a good chance of winning a lot more. Did you get a chance to see that game at all, or I, I didn't see the game. I saw the I saw the results afterwards. Been interesting watching this next generation come through because like Serena's kind of spanned three generations and now she's just starting to slow down a bit and when you look at this next level of players who are coming up I think you I think you're right like she's got that mix of power she's got those strokes she a second serve can look a little bit clunky at times but it's I mean it's like you were saying she was 20 she's 21 so you look at it and you think with good coaching and she, because like to bomb the second set and then bring it all back together and to get up in the third set, there's, there's been players with way more grand slams that aren't capable of doing that. They like, they start down that path, the voices in their head start going and then it's over. So mm-hmm. I, I think she's got a really bright future. Agreed. And shout out to Kvitova who was the victim of a home invasion not long ago, and they thought she wouldn't be able to hold a tennis record again. Big, big guts there and hard work to actually come back and make a Grand Slam final. I'm sure we'll see much more of her as well. In contrast, the men's match was a bit of a shock to everyone. Novak, world number one, played Rafael Nadal, who's the world number two. It was probably the most one-sided Grand Slam that I've seen that featured one of the, the, the top three in it. So the Federer, Nadal, Djokovic playing each other. I think Novak, that was probably Novak's best game, best match for mine, given the level of competition he was up against. He won 6-3, 6-2, 6-3. 
listen to this, he had 34 winners against nine unforced errors for the whole match. It was flawless tennis. And if he keeps this up, uh, he has a good chance of catching Nadal and then I think catching Federer as well. I didn't realize he was that close. He's got two more to, to come even with Nadal. And that moved him ahead of Sampras as well. So he's now the third winningest Grand Slam titleist. And to hit winners against Nadal is hard. That guy just covers more ground than anybody I've ever seen. And it was a fantastic match to win like that. I think there was, there was one French Open where Nadal blasted Federer off the court. I can't remember what year it was. But, but other than that, this is among those three, this is the most dominant performance. Agreed. Now, absolutely. And also, I mean, it's important to mention that Rafa hadn't played a game since the US Open. He was, you know, coming back to fitness and round one of the Australian Open was his first tennis of the year. So just key to mention that. Wow, I didn't realize that. Yeah, so, you know, knowing the competitor he is, he wouldn't want any excuses, obviously, but that's definitely, I think it definitely plays a role in in the level that we saw. Just Novak was... that little bit sharper, that little bit quicker around the court, just more prepared. And Rafa couldn't finish the points off quickly like he has been all tournament. And I think that's important yeah. for his own longevity as well. And it worked yeah, against the opponents. But as we know, Novak is probably one of the best defenders out there and he just couldn't finish the points as quickly as he wanted. Yeah, because they, they both thumped their semifinal opponents. Definitely been the two best players going through. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think obviously Tsitsipas looks good, but we've said that a lot about this younger generation that they play a couple of matches and they look good. And then for, I don't want to say for for whatever reason, because I think we do know the reason they they fall off. They just can't maintain the the effort, the quality that Nadal, Federer and Djokovic can. And even until recently, Andy Murray, who, you know, sadly will be retiring. Mm probably after Wimbledon, given his hip issues. And every generation that's come through, we said they're going to challenge or they're going to take over and it just hasn't happened. Yeah, I remember um, when it was Safin and they're like, this this is the guy, this guy's going to come in and dominate. And it was just red hot for two years and then nothing. At least Safin won something, right? He won the yeah. US and he won the Aussie Open, he beat Leighton. In the final yeah. year, so that was um you know very you know it was a, it was a very good win, but also deflating a bit to the Australian public because we really hadn't seen a, an Australian win win our Grand Slam for a long time. He was an awesome player to watch. Like he had a really nice game to watch, and he'd just pull off some freaky stuff while he was playing. But I think it's like occasionally you see guys who are so talented they don't learn how to work when they're young. And then they get to this Grand Slam level and then they run into guys like Nadal and Djokovic and Federer who are as talented, but they know how to work. And it just falls apart. Absolutely. So congratulations to Novak again and looking forward to the rest of this year and seeing if he can hold all slams at the one time. I think he's only missing the French Open right now. So if he wins that, he would be the holder of all four Grand Slams. Very impressive stuff. Mm. Moving on to something that's a bit more disappointing, at least for me as a big Socceroos fan, and that was the Asian Cup campaign where Australia lost in the quarterfinals to the hosts, United Arab Emirates 1-0. 
after a howler from uh, Milos Dejanek, I think in the 61st, 68th minute, he, you know, bad pass back to Matty Ryan and um, uh, Ali Mabkut uh, got the ball, rounded the keeper and scored. I, you know, I'm lost for words a bit, but it's been a very disappointing campaign start to finish. We started off losing to Jordan. We beat Palestine, which we expected to, and then we beat Syria um, with a stoppage time goal. We drew nil-nil in normal time and extra time with Uzbekistan and needed penalties to proceed. Just for comparison, and I know the players are a bit different, obviously, but we played Uzbekistan in 2011 and we beat them 6-0. Um. Right? Um, we've just we've fallen off too far from the, you know the heights of the mid two thousands and those teams that took us to the to the World Cups. We do not have any out and out finishers, you know, strikers that demand the ball, nowhere to be, people who yeah. can take on a couple of players and just create something out of nothing. And we relied on the band aid and an amazing band aid that it is in Tim Cahill for too long. He would score all our goals, and we said, you know, it's fine. We just need it. We need a good backline, a decent midfield, and it just hasn't worked out. I understand we have a few injuries. Obviously, Aaron Moy is out. Azani, who I have high hopes for uh, because of his attacking style. You know, he runs directly at you. He takes on defenders. So I do understand we had a few injuries, but even with the squad that we did have, we should be able to beat the United Arab Emirates. And if we had, it would have been Qatar in the semi-final. And that is also a team we're expected to beat just from the quality of who we have on the field, never mind all the injured players. So I don't know where they go from here. Keen to hear your thoughts on Graham Arnold and whether or not they should stick with him or, or move on and reset for, for the World Cup qualification campaign and start there. What are your thoughts? It's a, it's a difficult one. I mean, I, I think a change in coaching is probably going to be a, a good idea. When we were doing well at the World Cup, we had a particular culture within the team and I don't think we've kind of got that anymore. And when you look at like losing to the UAE, we, we had the ball more, we shot the ball more, we, we, had it, we had everything except the ability to finish it. So I think it's not just that you change the coach and it's going to change. We've, we've got a skill deficiency, as you were saying up front, we don't, we don't have the strikers or the wingers who will go out there and create these kind of opportunities. And it's, it's almost like we need to step back down to kind of the lower grade sort of levels and say, okay, how do we get these schoolboys and everybody coming up to be able to play at this international level? And whether that's sponsoring them to send them overseas to play in a different league in a different environment, um, I saw them doing Australia doing something similar with front row forwards in rugby, where you say, right, let's let's send you a way to go learn how to play in these different places because we we just don't have a pipeline of of good attackers coming through, but we can we can lock down other parts of the field, but until we deal with the ability to create good opportunities and and convert them, I think we're we're going to suffer. Agreed, and you know. Soccer does have a high participation rate in our country, but it does fall off given, you know, the number of other sports that can take attention as well. With that said, mm. and maybe someone who knows a lot more about the Socceroos setup and the football setup in general in, in Australia, where is the involvement of, you know, your Harry Kills, Mark Viduka, 
Lucas Neal, Brett Emerton, you know, this golden generation. And if they are involved, I apologize in, in advance. Uh, but I haven't seen them around this setup to, you know, look at that younger generation coming through, teach them how to be top-class professionals because these guys played in the top leagues in Europe, right? They, they were in the EPL consistently. A couple of them captained the clubs that they were at. And mm. whereas our new generation... They're either at lower clubs in the higher leagues or they're, they're playing in the Scottish League. They're playing in the Championship in England. Uh, a few players are playing in the Middle East, one in Japan. So it's just not the level of competition that you need that will really take you that next step. And I think you know, having people who have been there and done that around the setup will really help uh, improve that. And I'm not sure that they are around that right now. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really good point. And I kinda, it gets back to what we were saying before around culture is that you, you have to kind of pass, pass the torch and teach that next lot of guys coming through because it shouldn't be that they retire and then they start teaching the guys. It, they should be teaching that next generation as they approach retirement. Mm. And then it just turns into that constant pipeline line of high quality players coming through whereas I think the guys are they finish their career they don't maybe it's partly that they don't play together very often they don't know each other that well and they don't have that kind of relationship but I think I think we we wasted that golden generation like it it shouldn't have dropped off as fast as it has agreed agreed and lastly around the grounds this week Manchester United notched up their eighth win in a row. They beat Arsenal in the fourth round of the FA Cup 3-1 at the Emirates Stadium, which someone changed to changed the owner in Wikipedia to Jesse Lingard, who seems to score <laughs> every time he goes to the Emirates. Uh, as, as a Mad United supporter, obviously, I was very happy with that. But more importantly, just the way they're playing since Solskjaer took over, I just thought I'd give him some props for that. And I know it started off against some lower teams and everyone's saying, yeah, you just beat this team and that team lower end of the table. But I think, you know, winning form carries over, gives confidence, and that's what these guys have. Uh, they're playing attacking football. And the telling th- thing for me, Eric, was that as United were winning the game 2-1, um, Solskjaer made a couple of substitutions, right? When Mourinho was around... That substitution was likely to, to involve Fellaini, who is a central defensive midfielder, someone who gives you presence in the box, you know, throws his weight around, you know, not the neatest player, but someone who's definitely, you know, serviceable. What Solskjaer did was sub on uh, Marcus Rashford and Anthony Martial, right? And that just shows the intent of how that coach and the club wants to play. And it was good to see it come back not suggesting they're in a position to, you know, win the league or anything of that nature this season. They're just too far behind um, to do that, I think. But they can definitely influence the outcome and have a good run in the FA Cup, you know, reach the semi-final or the final to give some confidence and have that form carry over to the Champions League against um, PSG, which is the next opponent. Uh, so I, I thought, you know, pretty good, pretty good eight games so far. Yeah, I, I think as well. Do you, do you remember when he used to play for Man United under Ferguson and he'd bring him on? He was like second half super sub. 
where it was like, oh, we're, we're not going to put on somebody serviceable. So I'm going to take this game and I'm going to like grab it by the throat and we're going to win it. And it's, I, I think it's interesting that that's kind of moving over into his, into his coaching. Yeah, he's the baby-faced assassin, as he was known, as, yeah. as a player. And, and just on, on Arsenal, you know, they started the season off 20 games unbeaten, and it's been a big drop-off since. They've stagnated. There's not much creativity happening. I don't know what the situation with Ozil is like, and maybe some Arsenal fans out there can sort of shine a light on that. But I think, you know, the situation is, you know, somewhat untenable in terms of his playing time. But they need a creator. They need, you know, defenders who are disciplined. A couple of the goals were just bad, bad defending, really. Just too much um, space in, in the back for United to work. And really, Lukaku offered both assists. So thank you for working Lukaku back into form as well. Um, so, yeah, Arsenal, they need to take a hard look and see, you know, how they're going to salvage the rest of this season after the impressive start. Yeah, I think that the teams that had always been dominant in, in all of the big European leagues, it's they're, they're never one-trick ponies because people are smart enough to realise how you play, they adjust and you have to adjust again. Like nobody's ever had that that one-hit hammer punch that deals with, with everything. And I think with with... Arsenal, I think there's a little bit of people have figured out how they play. Some of their guys aren't playing as well. And it feels like there's a confidence thing that's seeped into their gameplay as well. So it's, I don't, I don't know where they're gonna, um, going to kind of go from here, to be perfectly honest. But it's, I don't think they're going to get back to the way they started the year, at least. Yeah, agreed. So watch this space. Interesting to see how the second half of the season plays out. Awesome. Well, that was a Around the Grounds wrap-up. Uh, Eric, I'm going to play a little quiz game. So, who am I? So, I'm going to give you some facts, and I want you to tell me who you think I'm talking about, yeah? Mm-hmm. So, I'm a franchise that was formed in 1946, playing one of the most iconic arenas in the world and worth about $3.6 billion. Made one conference semi-final appearance since 2000-2001 and have had 14 <laughs> losing seasons. Missed the playoffs the last six years in a row, including this one coming up because they will miss the playoffs. And in, since 2000, I've cycled through 11 coaches. My last conference title was 20 years ago and I haven't won a championship since 1973, which is 46 years ago. And I am talking about... The New York Knickerbockers. New York Knickerbockers. <laughs> Yeah, man, talk, it's, talk it's me, rough. How's life being a New York Knickerbockers fan? Oh, man, it's like, it's just frustrating. Like, I mean, you, you, you nailed it because when I, when I knew we were going to have a chat about it, I thought I should go back and familiarise myself with just how bad we've been for the last 20 years. And it kind of blew me away how bad we actually have been. Like if you take, like there was, when, when we did make the Eastern Conference semifinals and Mello won the scoring title, like it, that was the only good year since, since 2000. Like you have to go back to 2000 before we were even a home seed in the playoffs. It's, mm. it, like, it, it, it's terrible. We've had, I mean, 
we've had some bad luck, like Stoudemire turning up and becoming the most injury-prone, brittle person ever. Mm. We've had like, and we've had a bunch of picks that you you pick them and they don't turn out that great. But we've kind of been in that purgatory space where we don't get the great picks, but we we don't do well. So it's it's tough being a Knicks fan. <laughs> <laughs> I bet and. So just just on Mello, he was actually in New York today uh, at the Knicks versus Heat match, and he got a standing ovation from Madison Square Garden, which also, incidentally, when Dwayne Wade came on, they gave him a standing ovation, chanted MVP, right, and let's go (laughs) Heat. You know, sometimes Knicks fans aren't, because, you know, they look at Madison Square Garden as this mecca of basketball, it's this iconic place where everyone wants to drop 50 and 60 and shout out to James Harden and Kobe Bryant and, and LeBron who've, who've done a fair bit of good work at, at, at the Garden. They feel like, you know, if the great players come in, they always cheer for them, etc. I don't feel this sort of home. You, know, you don't see the Boston Red Sox doing that, right? Like if you want to compare it no. to a rabbit fan base, the New York Yankees don't do that either. Just the Knicks fans seem a bit, you know, like, oh, we haven't won for 50 years, so we'll just support the great ones when they come. And, yeah, so that happened today. And, incidentally, they also lost to the Heat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's one of the things about New York fans in general is that they, they love good ball mm-hmm. and they, they, will, they respect it when, when they see it. So it's, and, I, and maybe part of it is that we haven't been successful for so long. But it's, I, I don't know, I'm one of those, like, Knicks fans who's, not the biggest fan of Mello. Uh, <laughs> so it's, yeah, I would have been, I would have been the guy sitting in the seats going, yeah, it's the only reason why we're giving him a standing ovation is he was that, he was one of those few trips to the playoffs that we, we had in the last 20 years. It was, it was more the, like he never, he didn't keep himself in shape that well. And he, he's one of those guys I look at like, would you put Mello in the Hall of Fame? And like, like I wouldn't. And I look at it like I'd stand up, like I'd stand up and cheer for Patrick Ewing. Mm. But I don't know that I'd do the same thing for for Mello. I felt like the game moved on, and and Mello didn't kind of change himself to match how that was played. He's kind of playing the same way he's always played, but you can't do that in the game anymore. You're right, and he does a lot of iso ball, which you know someone might point to. To James Harden and talk about his ice ball, but James Harden's always moving, dribbling the ball, and, and we'll get to him in a second a bit later. But Melo's almost like a static ice ball because he's so big and strong. He goes on yeah. the block and he just holds on to it for a few seconds before he either does a you know an elbow jumper with one quick dribble or he takes you on. He just bullies you in. He just holds on. Yeah, to he's it. got there's, exactly. There's a lot more bump in what what Melo does compared to Harden. Like Harden, you breathe anywhere near him and he's going to the free throw line. Like it's there, it's different, different interpretations of the rules and different, like it is a different time, but it's, you're right that you, you have to have mobility to play ISO ball in, in today's game because that you, like you just get eaten alive out there. So, and he's, he's just kind of failed to, when, when you saw him at OKC, and then you saw him in Houston. You could tell the people, said, we know you've got skills, but we need you to kind of play like this. He wasn't 
able to do it. Like he'd shoot long twos and then and then sit there looking really guilty about it because he knows he was supposed to be half a meter backwards and shooting a three. Like that, that the muscle memory and those synapses they fire in a particular way with him. And I don't know. It's I heard he might be picked up by the Lakers. <laughs> I mean, I heard. I don't understand it personally. I don't see the value of having Melo there with all that young crowd that's there. Yeah, me, I'd rather me, have me them either. playing, and if some of them are can show some skills and some give them game time to be sort of trade worthy, if, if that's what's needed for the Lakers, then let that happen. But having Carmelo there, I don't think helps. And just on those long twos, I think Daryl Morey would have looked at that and had heart had a heart attack every time. Daryl Morey, who's the oh, yeah. GM of the Houston Rockets, big analytics guy. Every time he saw yeah. Melo hitting those shots, he would have freaked out. So it just wasn't going to work. I'm I'm surprised with like how analytically driven that guy is that he allowed Melo to come in. Like it it seemed like like maybe it was the Chris Paul friendship mm. where he said, I'll find a way to make this work, ignore all the analytics, ignore the way he plays, I'll find a way to make it work. And it was, it's kind of like, even though he's not my favorite player, I, I do get a little bit sad when I see where he's at now and think about kind of where he was in 2012. And also when you compare like LeBron, like they came back, they came in the league at the same time and you see LeBron at one end and, and Melo kind of really falling off at the other end. Like part of me, it's, it's like watching an old lion kind of get, get eaten out there. He just didn't take care of himself. He didn't adapt and he refused to take a reduced role which is, again, key when it comes to the ego and what you can and can't do. I mean, you look at Dwayne Wade as he got older. You know, he had 15 points today, happily coming off the bench. And Melo, you know, as he was moving from OKC to Houston, we all remember the talk about him insisting to be a starter, not coming off the bench, not doing the team thing. And you'd think mm. when he took the money to stay in New York, right, he, he took that max deal, he took the money over winning. And now that he had all that money, you'd think he'd do what needs to be done to actually win himself a ring and his ego still wouldn't let him do that. Yeah. But it, it, like Dwayne Wade is a really interesting comparison because when LeBron went to the heat, Wade was still at the peak of his powers, but he realized that if they were going to win, he had to let LeBron take the lead. And he just took his ego, put it to one side and they became an astonishing team. And you would, you just would never get that with Melo. And I don't know how I would use Melo with the other players that that are out there. Like it's like where do you where do you put another guy who needs to touch the ball so much in that particular Lakers team? I I think that I think he'd be a little bit disruptive in in almost every way if he went to the Lakers. I think they need to focus on their young guns and see who who figure out who they're going to trade, who they're going to keep and not bring somebody like Melo into the fold just yet. I agree. On on the Melo era, what's your assessment of the Phil Jackson era there in New York? Phil, I mean, Phil's an interesting one. Like the the thing about Phil, which I like he's this kind of hall of fame guy, he's got his own approach and everything, but as a coach, like you look at the teams he won titles with and they're like incredible teams. Like you look at the, the Jordan teams, you look at the, the Shaq and Kobe Lakers and the Kobe Lakers in the second time around, like they were phenomenal people uh, who he had on that roster. 
And when he came to the Knicks and he didn't have that stuff, I, I think that he probably needed to make a few more adjustments to the way he sort of managed things and I don't think he did. So I, I think that you particular organisations are going to do very well with Phil Jackson. But people who are in that period where they're not quite at the top yet and it's a little bit of a transition period, I don't know if Phil's the guy you want to bring in to, to kind of do that. I think he takes the people that he's got and then he'll kind of turn them into a team. But if, if they're not great people, I don't know if he does the, like, build everybody's confidence up, pat them on the back. I think he takes really elite players and turns them into juggernauts. You know, when he was there, there was a lot of talk about him insisting on the triangle offense and wanting to run yeah. back still. When the NBA had passed that, I was just watching this morning Milwaukee play OKC and Brooke Lopez hit four threes in the first half. One of them was a step back three, Eric. Literally, Brooke Lopez <laughs> was dribbling the ball at the three-point line and he did a step back three, which he hit. That's where the game is, for better or worse, and it's not probably not my favourite way to play basketball. I prefer a bit of an in-and-out play, running you know, sets, giving a big man opportunity on the, to post up, etc. But that's where the game is, and Phil never adjusted to that. Yeah, I, mean, I think the, the game today is, it's just like, I find it weird watching somebody like Embiid shoot threes. But it's, I look at Embiid and just think, you, you could dominate the paint. In, in a way that nobody, nobody, and no one could stop you. Like, because, because, no, not, because we haven't had big centers for a long time, they're not in the league really anymore. So if somebody, I think that's why, I guess, when people are looking at Zion, where you're looking at somebody that's so physically powerful, I mean, for me, I look at it and I think, I don't know who'd be able to stop this guy. And Embiid I put in in that same category as well, where if he really wanted to go through, I, I don't see anybody being able to stop him. But there is this kind of this change in the game of the big guys playing a little bit more on the perimeter, putting up three-point shots. Um, it's, it's different. I'm not sure in my head I've completely adjusted to it either. Speaking of big guys, there's a... Another seven-footer, I guess, 211-centimetre big guy who got everyone onto eating kebabs, actually, when he got to OKC. He's <laughs> currently warming up the Knicks bench. Yeah. I mean, I've, I, mean I don't know what's happening with Cantor, mm. but it's, it was weird. Like, the whole Brooklyn game was strange. Like, he's got a really good record of thumping Brooklyn, and he just kept him on the seat. He, he won't... He won't talk to him about trading him somewhere else. He's kind of, he's in no man's land at the moment. Because, I mean, the Knicks are currently in the process of burning as many resources as they can to get cap space to try and sign somebody. To me, it makes sense that if you're trying to, if you're trying to trade somebody like Cantor, give him the opportunity to go out there and play great because that increases his trade value. Sitting him on the bench where he's getting upset and he's coming across negative, it kind of destroys your negotiating position. I, I find it, I don't, I don't understand at all what they're trying to do with him. And, you know, the, the trade deadline, which is February 8th, what do you think is going to happen? Do you think they'll be able to deal him before then? 
I think if there's any way to make it happen, they're they're going they're going to make it happen. I mean, they they've obviously signaled that they're in investing the time in their next generation of guys coming through. I mean, I don't think there's any disagreement that Cantor's not going to be part of their long-term future. But, I mean, we've kind of got two guys who are chewing up a bit of cap, cap space in Cantor and Hardaway. And the, the question is how do we get rid of these guys and clear out as, as much cap space as possible without turning the team into something completely horrendous? But that's, I think you still need people to come in and watch your team. And I think New Yorkers like basketball, but if we start playing like the Cavs, I don't know how many people are going to want to turn up. So it, I, I think they're going to try. The way they're handling it, I think they're making that job more difficult for themselves than it needs to be. I think the most likely scenario with Hardaway and Cantor is we'll probably end up with Hardaway still on the books, but Cantor, Cantor leaving. It's worth noting that, Cantor's contract expires at the end of this season, so he will be an un- mm. unrestricted free agent, which means if he is not traded now, he will walk. He will be able to walk away for nothing from New York. And also, he is only 26. I was a bit surprised, actually. I thought Enos Cantor was a bit older than that, but he is only 26 years old, so I still think he has a few years left in him um, in the league, and he'll be able to help another team so he'll be fine. It just won't be yeah. in the next uniform. Yeah, I think that I think he's a he's a solid guy. Like he's been he's played well for us as well as any of the Knicks have played this year. Well, and he, sorry, he has the best player efficiency rating for people who average twenty minutes or above for the New York Knicks. So he's at twenty two point yeah. three. So it's yeah. So he's he's playing okay, and so I I think that he. He'd be a really solid player for a fringe contender looking to to get a big man in there. I mean, I, like, I don't know if, if the Lakers are thinking about getting another big man on their books to, to help him in the paint a little bit, but I, I don't think they could do too badly with him. I, I think he's a solid player. I've, I just think that they've decided that he's not the guy that they, they want to move into the future with. Absolutely. And also with Porzingis out and no real timeline on his return from what I can see, mm. the future isn't looking too good for, for the Knicks either. Yeah, I think that, and, you know, I guess it kind of goes into the, the discussion on the trade deadline. We, we just don't have a good platform at the moment for, for starting to rebuild things. I agree. And James Dolan... Probably not the best owner in sports going around in terms of some of the decisions he's made with regards to the Nixons. He bought them. And in a recent interview, I think it was late last year, he suggested that he might be open to selling, not that he will. He still likes to be in, in charge of, of the organization. But, yeah, it hasn't really worked out for New York. And I think good New York basketball is good for the NBA and good for the league. And the sooner or the quicker they start performing and really, you know, give people a show that's worthy of New York, uh, the better the league will be for it. Yeah, I, I agree. It's just been such a long time since they've been competitive. But they're like the Lakers. When the Lakers are doing well, the, the league's a more, like, enjoyable place. And if the Knicks can get back there, I think it's, I think it's going to be the same thing. I agree. Let's move on to the all-star teams. 
So I'm going to read out, we'll start off with in the West. I'll tell you who the starters are, and then you tell me if you agree to this starting five or if your starting five had anyone else in it, okay? So the Western Conference All-Stars, the starting five include LeBron James, who's the team captain. He got the most votes. Kevin Durant, Paul George, Stephen Curry, and James Harden. No AD. No AD. No. <laughs> <laughs> what are your thoughts was, there? Uh, when I was looking at it, was one of those ones where I looked at the list and then I was like, oh, they've, they've misspelled his name or there's been a mistake. Because <laughs> uh, it was one of those ones where like, I actually thought that if I, I was going to put it together, that I that LeBron wouldn't be in my team. Mm. I'd I'd have AD and not because he did, wasn't playing fantastic. It's just he's he's had a, a big injury break, and then I was looking at that thinking, well, um, it's not that you haven't been playing great and you weren't playing at All Star level before you got hurt. It's just that you've had a bunch of time off. I'd give one of these other guys an opportunity to to kind of step up, but the the player and the the fan voting was just so far over the top for LeBron. It was, it was crazy, but it's a, it's a, like, that's a ridiculous team. Like Durant (laughs) is Durant. Paul George has been shooting like 51% from the three point line the last 10 games. Like he's completely hidden that Russell Westbrook is playing like trash. Steph is Steph and, and Harden's just been ridiculous the last kind of two, three weeks. Saying that oh, LeBron shouldn't be there, AD should, I'd prefer to have AD there. That's the only change that I'd make. But it's interesting. That's my all-star team. I may actually be looking, like, if, if you were going to try and make uh, a team play during the regular season, I, I would want LeBron in there. He's just, like, we see what he does to teams and making them play as well as they can. I mean, the only problem with that team would be, who who gets the ball in their hand the majority of the time. Yep. No, look, good point about LeBron. And just for context, he has missed 15 games. And once this, the game concludes today, it'll make it 16. So he's missed 16 games. He played the first 34, I think. Uh, he played 34 games to start the season. And I think at the time, he, he would have definitely made the all-star team for mine. Uh, yeah. Just given that he's been out for as long as he has... And, you know, at the, you know, it sounds a bit sacrilegious that we're sort of saying LeBron shouldn't be a starter on the, on, on, the, um, on, on the West team. But I do think AD should have been in there. But the rest of it, I, I agree with. I'd have, you know, Harden, who going off the first 20 games of the season, wouldn't be on the team. Right. Yeah. Um, Steph Curry, obviously. KD is having a 28-7-6 and six year with probably his best efficiency of his career, that 94 what do they call it, 40, 50, 90 um, stat line that people love. So 40% three-point you know, um, shooting, 50% mid-range and 90% from the free throw line. And he's <laughs> averaging that. Yet no one is talking about Kevin Durant, just talks to the greatness of the Golden State Warriors. Outside of that, just a big shout-out to the big man in Denver who's doing some amazing work there, has been all season in Nikola Jokic, amazing player, great vision, and they've really outperformed what anyone expected of them this year, and most of it is due to him. Mm. I think Cats had a good season, but the Timberwolves—they're not doing very well. But I still think he'll be, you know, on the bench. And Damian Lillard 
is having a great season for Portland. I think Portland have surprised a few as well. Or maybe they do what Portland does, just make the playoffs and then they get bundled out in the first round anyway. He was one of my fringe guys that I was thinking about had played really, really well this year. Um, but the the depth the depth in the West is at the at the pointy end is is ridiculous. Both both conferences they've both got sensational people. The All Star starters for the Eastern Conference are the Greek Freak. So Giannis Antetokounmpo is captain. He got the most votes. Kawhi Leonard, Joel Embiid, Kyrie Irving, and Kemba Walker. Who was on your team, Eric? That's pretty much it. I mean, the Kemba's start to the season was ridiculous. He was just a monster. And I think being a, a Knicks fan, you have this kind of soft spot for other teams that aren't particularly great. And Charlotte is one of those. Is <laughs> one of those other teams. And his his start to the season was just was just fantastic. So I, I really wanted to see him get there. I was I saw that Dwayne Wade was getting a lot of votes. Sentimental stuff, I guess yeah. more yeah, more sentimental. There were there was part of me looking at Derek Rose though, where and and that's probably partially sentimental on my part as well. But he's just completely turned himself around this year. Like last year, when when he was at the Cavs, you looked at it and just thought, This is done. This is the uh, an amazing player that got a terrible series of injuries and and this is how he goes out. And then this year he's just been, this season he's been awesome. So it's, but the, I think that that team's right for me. I mean, Embiid's, Embiid's fantastic. Kawhi is Kawhi. It, he irritates me at times. I think he takes too many breaks and misses too many games. <laughs> but Kyrie, Kyrie should be there. And, and Giannis is until, you know, until, a week or two weeks ago, I thought he was front runner for MVP. So I, I think that's that'd be my that'd be my Eastern Conference team. Yeah, look, I was flipping between Kemba Walker and Ben Simmons just because Charlotte. I mean, they're having the five hundred year that they always have. Kemba's numbers aren't that much better than the last two years, and I put something about that on 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 our Facebook page. And one one of the guys mentioned that you know, given that it's in Carolina this year, the All-Star game. It could have been a sentimental pick as well. But I think you're right in that there's no one that's sort of stood out clearly for that second guard position. So I'm not uh, – I don't have an issue with the Kimber Walker pick, but for mine – and in an All-Star game, I would have liked to see Ben start. And shout out to um, Kyle Lowry, who's also having a, a, a decent season, although his shooting's a bit down, but his facilitating's been really good. And really sad for Victor Oladipo and his injury. Yeah, um, you know, it's got him out for the rest of the year. I thought Indiana could have made some some noise in the playoffs, but Victor's out now, and I don't think they'll they'll be able to do anything. Yeah, I, I had a I had a long think about Simmons, and then decided that I didn't want him to make it so that he'd feel bad and work more on his jump shot. I don't want him <laughs> playing it playing at the look because the irritating thing is you look at him and you just think. Man, one or two tweaks, and then you've got this monster on your hands. And I don't want him feeling like, okay, I'm at this top level now. This is this is good enough. I want him to kind of get have something to get irritated about, and and not making the starters for the all stars. Looked at him like I'm not putting you on that list. I want you to. I mean, he doesn't even need to be a fantastic shooter. He he just needs to be a solid free throw shooter. Mm-hmm. And then, sorry, not three. Uh, 
solid free throw shooter. Yeah. If he could do that, I think that completely changes the way that you guard him, the, the way that you that everything happens. Because at the moment, you can kind of foul him. He's shooting what, like in the 40s from the free throw line, something really bad. And you're better off in clutch situations in the playoffs, you'll just foul him. Send him, send him there. He doesn't have the ability to do what Harden does and you send him to the line, he makes 80%, 90%. So it's, it's just that, like, if he could free throw well, mm. I think you've got a monster. Yeah, look, he's, um, he's at 58% from the free throw line, which is still, you know, awful, I think. I don't want to even use the word not very good. It is plain awful for a star to be shooting that low. He definitely needs to work on it. But the last few games, I'm starting to see him do this turnaround jumper on the block where he dribbles a bit in and then he sort of turns around and makes that shot over his defender and they're starting to fall. So if he can get that shot consistently, he will be a bigger threat than than what he is. Yeah. Um, and and it's, it's nitpicking, right? Because he's, he's awesome. <laughs> we're just he looking at awesome. it saying, yeah, yeah, we're like, okay, this is what you need. It's not to get good. It's to be MVP worthy. You make these kind of small adjustments and then that's an MVP caliber player. Speaking of MVP caliber, and you mentioned Giannis was in the lead maybe up to the last two weeks or so, is James Harden's current pace, usage, everything that he's doing, is that sustainable in your eyes? It's, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, I could see him... So let's put aside Chris Paul coming back from injury and the other guys coming back and how that changes everything. If this were was the team that was going to be there until the end of the season, I think he might be able to pull it off till the end of the season, but then he gets destroyed first-round playoffs. But I don't think that the, the way that they're playing now, the way he's using it now, I don't think that's going to work in the playoffs. I think that you'll get people starting the double team him you'll get people picking him up from half court it's I think that when it comes to the playoffs I think that it's not going to work so I I think he could probably get to the end of the season if he really wanted to but I I think he's burned out I don't think there'll be anything left in his legs and people will adjust and he'll they'll the Houston will leave in the first round when when the other guys come back when Chris Paul comes back the whole usage pattern of the team will change. I, I think the the way he's playing will change completely. And the question's going to be: Are they going to be better when Chris Paul comes back? <laughs> so they've been they've been playing all right. They have, and look, Chris Paul had his first game today, actually. Um, so they played the Orlando Magic. He started. He's on a minutes res- restriction, obviously. He played twenty five minutes, had twelve points, six assists. You know, sort of a standard game, but. Significantly, he had three steals, right? So something Chris Paul gives you is really good defense. It's oh. 25 minutes, so it's hard to judge yet until you get CP3 at his full fitness. And look, for mine, this is unsustainable and it means absolutely nothing. The NBA just wants a narrative in January and February where things are slow, the Super Bowl's around the corner, NFL is king right now, and they need... They need a bit of a narrative, and what James Harden is doing provides that. I mean, look, 45 points average in the month of January is nothing to sneeze at. It is, you know, some great work. He does get to the free throw line a fair bit. One of my issues with this 
is in an interview he said that this is his legacy. Ah, uh, yeah, I saw and, that. And dude, like, if this is your legacy, you have this the wrong way around. I'm going to give you a few names who had high usage seasons, right? And I want you to tell me if they won a ring or not when they had that. Michael Jordan, Wilt Chamberlain, Allen Iverson, and Kobe Bryant. Of those four, who do you think won a ring when they led the league or they had that same level of usage rate that James Harden is having this year? Maybe Mike and Kobe. So no one, no one on that list <laughs> yeah. won a ring when they had that usage rate. Michael's usage rate was this high in the 80s, right? Before they got in Pippen and Rodman on the team had a few other guys who could, you know, carry a bit of the weight. Kobe's usage rate, when everyone talks about the Kobe games where he had X number of games with 50 points in a row, none of these guys actually won a ring with that usage rate. Kobe had that rate in the years between Shaq and Gasol. And if you remember, those were the years where Kobe was considering leaving LA. He wanted to be traded until they pulled out the steel of the century, as LA always does. And they got rid of Kwame Brown and I don't know who else. And they got Pau Gasol, who's a Hall of Fame center. And that's Mm. the team that won two rings. I just say this to say that this usage rate, if this is what you think your legacy is, your legacy will not be championships. Yeah, I I agree with that entirely. I mean, it's, it's not just whether it's the usage rate and the points. It's nobody looks at this, like look at Allen Iverson, right? The guy was phenomenal, but he will never be in the discussion as an all-time great. Like he was culturally an icon. He was a, an incredible player to watch. But if you you look at Kobe versus Allen Iverson, you'll always go Kobe. And a large part of that is, five rings and if your legacy if you if you don't desire for your legacy to be championships then you should just be out there trying to get as much money as you possibly can like there's what what else is there like why why put yourself because it's not easy being an nba player like it's a lot of work like if you don't want to be a champion if your legacy isn't winning championships then, then what motivates you? What drives you? And that might be that might be something that holds him back from from performing in the playoffs. Like he's never had an, an amazing playoff series. He's always like he has a tendency of turning up to the playoffs and either being tired or choking or, or doing something else. He's never getting there and then like completely dominating another good team. So I I'm I'm with you. I, I think you're the amount of rings you get is what your real legacy is and you get judged your legacy will be judged against guys like bill russell and 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 jordan and all of these guys who have rings and if you don't have at least a couple to get in the conversation people aren't gonna like pay that much attention to your legacy you'll be a a fantastic player that just never transcended i agree you want to be another tracy mcgrady or do you want to be Kobe, LeBron, obviously, you know, MJ, Magic, etc. right? So that's a decision that James Harden needs to make. I understand he's carrying more weight with Chris Paul out, Clint Capella, although shout out to Kenneth Fareed and the minutes he's been giving them since they brought him in, his energy and crashing the boards. 
his approximated capella. Not exactly the same, but I think they don't, they're not missing as much as they would otherwise. So that's working fine. They need to figure out building CP3 back into this lineup, given how much Harden has been using the ball. And let's see what the last you know, 30 games or so look like in this season, probably less than 30 games now, isn't it? 25 or something like that. So Yeah, something like that. Let's see. Let's see how that goes. Okay, last topic for today is the NBA trade deadline, which is coming up very quickly. So Thornmaker, Aussie center, who plays for the Milwaukee Bucks, he has asked for a trade. He really hasn't been playing much. He hasn't played the last four games this month. And he hasn't played for more than 20 minutes in a game since December 5. What do you think is going is going on there in Milwaukee? Why isn't he getting the, the minutes that he was getting at the start of the season? To be honest, I don't know. Like sometimes I wonder if you try something and it works, and then you just keep doing the same thing. Because I mean, the Bucks have looked the Bucks have looked good, but I don't I don't understand why he hasn't been getting minutes. He started off the season really well. Uh, I saw I saw an article this morning saying that he was requesting a trade. And to be honest, if he's not getting the minutes, he needs to do it. But I've, I don't know why he's not getting minutes, to be honest. I thought he'd done a solid job. But I've, I think that maybe Milwaukee is looking at it and saying, well, we're doing quite well at the moment. Like, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Fair enough. I just hope he gets some, some minutes. I think he has a lot of potential. And selfishly, from an Australian perspective, I really want him to develop and us have a really good crack at the NBA, champ- uh, not the NBA, sorry, the basketball, the World Basketball Championships coming up. Question for you, will Gasol and or Conley be dealt at all at the deadline? Well, it's, it's interesting. When I saw Conley and Gasol go up, I, the, the, first team, the first team I actually thought about was the Lakers. I thought, I thought well, I think Conley could do good there. I don't know that they'll get traded by the deadline, but but it is one of those ones where you look at it and you think these guys could work very well. I think Conley's got more on his legs than Gasol does. I think that he would make a really – I think that if you had a little bit more oomph up the middle with, with the Lakers, they'd be – I think you're going to need it if you're eventually going to compete with Golden State and you've got to deal with Boogie. Like you, you can't give away the paint to Golden State down the track. So I think everybody who is thinking about trying to have a go at Golden State, you need you need a, a solid big guy in the middle. And I think both of those guys could could do well. But I I think Conley's more likely to get traded. And look, I think the the biggest hurdle is the size of both their contracts. That's yeah. that's the issue for both. Conley and Gazzola. I think Mark is on his last last year of the contract this year, whereas Conley's has another couple of years to run on it, and it's in the thirty plus range. And I think that will sort of put a few people off, unless Memphis is willing to pay for some of it. So you know, Conley has got thirty point five million this year, thirty two point five million next year, and thirty four point five million. Oh, in the 2020, <laughs> 2021 season, I'm really wow. not sure who is going to take that on, right? And even in 2020, he's got 22 million guaranteed for early t- termination. And you know, if he plays, and I think he's already hit that. If he's going to play 55 games this year, it'll be a 
fully guaranteed contract for 2020, 2021, regardless. He's going to hit you for 22 million anyway uh, during yeah. that season. That's a lot of money. Yeah, it is. The, I hadn't. I didn't realize he had that much left on his contract. They're, they're definitely going to have to. They're going to have to soak up some of that if they want to get rid of him, because you'd never, you'd never pay that guy that much at this point in his career. No, and and Mark, and just for accuracy, he's got one more season after this one at a twenty five point six million hit to the cap. That is all guaranteed, and then he becomes an unrestricted free agent but he'll be 35 years old by then. Um, mm. So again, I think Memphis need to just blow this thing up, start afresh when, where they can. They're not winning anything yeah. with, this, with this team. Yeah, and I think that they should, even if, even if they keep one of the big guys on to kind of mentor and help the next generation along, I think they're better off take, getting on the front foot and starting to rebuild than than letting it kind of sit there, turn into a mess and and then try and rebuild from there. Because that's that's pretty much where the Knicks are at at the moment is that, you know, when you start looking at the trade deadline, I mean, you can almost, you can almost split the player market into people who want to pick up one of those big players. There's the people going for Anthony Davis, Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, Kawhi Leonard, and to a lesser extent, Jimmy Butler. And you're either going for one of those guys or you're not going for one of those guys. And I think that's going to be, that's going to be what drives the trade market this, for a large number of teams in, at this trade deadline and, and at the end of the season as well. And I think that where the Knicks have gotten into is it's going to be really hard to convince one of those guys to come and play for the Knicks because even if we can afford to play you, what what else is there? Mm. So you can't let it sit there and and turn into a mess because people will look at it and say, "Well, it's it's a big market, it's a lot of money, but I don't want to go there." Yep. And with that grim outlook on the New York Knicks' future, this is us <laughs> for today. Thank you, Eric, for your time, and we'll chat again after the trade deadline to see if anything you know, comes about. I really don't see any big moves, but we will have a show um, after the trade deadline. We'll chat about it and see what's going to happen for the rest of the season. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We will have a Super Bowl preview special uh, later this week. Jensen will be back to do that uh, with me, so watch out for that. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. The podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher, and we're still waiting for Spotify to approve, but they take their good time and we'll chat to you soon. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Mo.